Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Welcome. Uh, I love worshiping with you guys. Uh, love that you're here. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, we are going to be preaching through the book of 1 Samuel. So if you got Bibles, flip there uh, to 1 Samuel. And my Bible is page 225. I don't know what page it is in your Bible, but we're going to be in 1 Samuel all semester. Um, and really, that's just what we do here is we just pick a book of the Bible and we work our way through it and we unpack God's word and then we figure out, okay, what does that mean for us, God, and how do we apply this to our life? So, and hey, if you made it to college and either you don't have a Bible or you lost a Bible or you don't know where yours is or it's buried in a box somewhere, we totally get that. It happens all the time. We've got Bibles we'd love to give you. So just take one of these black Bibles on your way out. We've got them spread out around the room and that is yours. Um, we'd love for you to have it. All right, before we jump in, I want to tell a true story, a little bit about uh, me and my brother. I've got an older brother, Aaron, and you're going to see how this plays out in, in our text as kind of illustration to, to set the table for it. But Aaron is one of my heroes. Um, I, I love my brother a ton. He's one of my favorite people. And um, Aaron, there was a season in life where uh, my life and Aaron's life looked drastically different. Right, there was a season in life where, where kind of the trajectory of my life, um, I honestly was a pretty good kid. I didn't get in trouble, never got arrested, although that was one of my life goals. It has yet to happen, and so never did that. My life goal was I'm going to get arrested one day just because I wanted to you know, know what that was like, and then uh, also to be homeless, and uh, then I met my wife, and she ruined that, so I can't be homeless with a wife, and I have kids, and I definitely can't be homeless. So right now, I'm not doing great, but I'm, I'm going to get there one day. Um, so that, my, my life though was pretty, I mean, I was a pretty, I mean, I've never been a big rule follower, but I just never got in a lot of trouble at the same time. Then there was my brother's life, and there was a season where kind of I was really starting to pursue the Lord, and I was in school and doing all this stuff, and, and then he was, honestly, his life was really just kind of off the rails, and we grew up in the same home, we're only a few, few years apart in age, and yet his life, I mean, really, I mean, it was kind of this, this off the rails, down the hill um, uh, I mean, he was deep into drugs and all kinds of stuff. Um, one night, actually, uh, to just kind of the pinnacle of just the disaster that happened in Aaron's life. Uh, true story. Um, he ended up doing shrooms and then getting naked and then accidentally shooting a cop, um, which is illegal, guys, just so you know. Um, we're going to talk about that. Uh, so if you're like, is that? No, it's frowned upon in these parts. Um, if you're new to Texas, uh, here's what happened. He, he did shrooms and he started... I mean, he started believing, and it was really a sobering, when I think back about it, how close he was to just it being even worse than it, than it was, um, he started believing the reality, the false reality that he was in a dream, and the only way to wake himself up was to take his life, and praise God, he didn't own a gun or anything like that, so there wasn't like an easy solution to that, but he was just out of his mind, and so at some point, he decided to take off his clothes, and then he was running down the street, and he, it was the middle of the night, leaves his apartment from college, and decides, I'm going to go run in front of traffic. And so this really sobering thing, and uh, honestly, probably because the fact that he was naked in the middle of the night made people be like, that guy's probably not an exercise freak. That guy is probably on drugs. And so the cops showed up, and they're in between him and the highway. And, and my brother, true story, was like, oh, good, the cops are here. I'll just let them, 
I'll just let them shoot me, and then I'll wake up from this really, really bad dream. And so he charges the cop, and the cop is hitting him um, and, and trying to subdue him, and my brother tries to get the gun out of the cop's holster. The gun goes off, and the bullet goes through the bottom of his holster, and it ricochets off of a pocket knife that the cop wasn't even supposed to have that was in his pocket, and so the bullet doesn't actually pierce his leg or anything like that. Another cop had just gotten there and tackled him and pepper sprayed him, and basically my brother wakes up. It was about 15, 20 years ago. My brother wakes up uh, in, a, in a hospital bed, handcuffed to a hospital bed, and realizes for the first time really deeply, my life is totally off the rails, right? Like this has now ruined everything. And I remember I got the phone call um, and then had to go and tell my parents, hey, something really awful happened. We've got to go drive and visit Aaron in jail. And we did the whole talking on the phone through the glass window, the whole deal. And I remember even in the car ride with my parents on, on our way to visit Aaron in jail after he'd been arrested, I, I remember us thinking, I mean, his life is destroyed. Like, he'll never have a normal life. I mean, he got charged with assault on a public civil servant. That's five to 99 years. I mean, this is, this is going to ruin everything. He was, you know, in his 20s at the time, and his life is so far off the rails. There's, I mean, it's just, it's just going to be destruction from here on out. Um, just teaser alert, just in case you have to, like, leave or go to the bathroom and miss the end of the story. I mean, our God is a God who redeems and restores. Our God is a God who says there is no too far gone. There is no too broken for me to take a story and make it something really, really crazy. But we'll get to that at the end. I I want you to see, though, that two brothers, right, just same house, same upbringing, same, you know, church that we grew up in, and yet our lives looked really, really different for a season. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see kind of the same thing, a contrast Uh, here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to see kind of a path that leads to destruction and a path that leads to blessing and life and and honestly just sweetness that's going to carry throughout the book. And and I want us to look to God's word of why, right? Not just what happens, but then we're going to unpack the why. So uh, let me set up last week. If you missed last week, we started in chapter one and we saw the story of Hannah and her husband Elkanah. And and they couldn't and and Hannah couldn't have a baby, which in that time, in the Old Testament time, was a huge deal, right? Because unfortunately that was how they valued women, was are they able to produce uh, children for, for the for the community and, and for the family, specifically, are they able to have sons? And so she was desperate and she was discouraged and she went before the Lord and she is praying and she is vulnerable and God ends up meeting her in her desperation and God ends up bringing peace to her even before he changed her circumstances and then God ends up giving her a son. So that's what happened in chapter one. God gives her the son. It's this baby named Samuel and, and in, after she has Samuel, she has made this vow to God Um, before she was even pregnant, to say, if you give me the son, I'm going to dedicate him to you and to your service. And that's exactly what she does. So in the end of chapter one, that's all she wanted was a son. All she wanted was a son, and God gives it to her. And then she goes and says, this child is yours. And so functionally, she gives him over to the temple, right, to the church at the time, the temple. And he's functionally adopted by Eli, who's the prophet, and kind of runs the temple in a place called Shiloh. And so she wanted a son, God gave it to her, and then her faith to say, but I want you more, God, and surrendered that son over who who was raised as this adopted son in the temple. And so we're going to see his life paralleled to the prophet Eli has two biological sons. And we're going to see these paths 
go crazy different directions. Let's jump in. We're going to start in verse 12 of chapter 2, and we'll throw it up on the screen too. we got a, a lot of uh, scripture we're going to cover, and so I'm just going to chew through it pretty fast. We're going to unpack it, and then we're going to change gears um, and, and really start applying it to, okay, how do, what does this mean for us today? Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. <laughs> we know where this is going. We know, we know uh, there's no punches pulled here. They did not know the Lord. These are the sons of the prophet who helped run the temple. They're, function, they're priests in the temple. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when, the, when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, and he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And the man said to him, Well, let the fat burn first, then he would, then, and then you take as much as you wish. He would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force." Thus the sins of the young men were very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Okay, let me explain what's happening here. You have these two sons, Hophni and Phinehas are their names. Great, solid, good names there. So Hophni and Phinehas, they're the worst, right? I mean, they are just scoundrels, right? They are religious leaders. They're religious leaders, they're priests, and God has set standards for how priests should function in the, in the Old Testament time over the temple. And God had created a way to say, hey, this is what worship looks like in the Old Testament time. You'll bring your offerings and your sacrifices, you'll burn the fat off the meat. There's all these different things to say, I want you to revere me. I want you to understand how holy I am as a God. And so this is how I want you to approach me, and I'm going to meet you with grace, and I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to bless all these things. And these guys are just... They don't care at all. I mean, Leviticus chapter 7 is, is these rules that are given to the priests of this is how the sacrifices should work, right? This is what should go down. And then Leviticus chapter 8 is this is how the priests should conduct themselves. They disregard all of it. And they're just getting meat. They just, people come with their sacrifices to the Lord and they're like, yep, I'll take that and I'll take some of that. And I got a three-pronged fork and I'm going to stick it in here and I'll, this is for me. And so there's just these, these gluttons in the name of the Lord just stealing whatever they want from people as they're trying to worship with their offering and worship with their sacrifices. They had zero respect, right? In verses 12 through 17, what we just read, there's kind of this, this benchmark that I, I think of it like a, a signpost over what we're seeing. That what we're seeing in that passage is we're seeing that God's way is dishonored by men who knew better. Right, these men knew better in this, in this section. They, I mean, they knew God, so they had their father set an example, and this is what they're supposed to do. They knew better, and they just didn't care. They didn't care about God's way. They dishonored it. Now, let's see Samuel. Samuel, remember, was, the, was Hannah's kind of miracle child who is given basically over the temple to be raised in the temple. Let's see the trajectory of his life. Verse 18, the next verse. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe to t and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, so that's Hannah's, I mean that's uh, Samuel's parents, his mom and his dad. Eli would bless them. He would bless them and he said, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. 
So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Um, a couple things here. One, uh, it, it mentions this thing that Samuel wears, this linen ephod, and what that was was a priestly garment, right? What, what we see in them describing him wearing that is that Samuel's taking this seriously, right? That Samuel is doing it saying, I want to do this right. I want to do this. I'm, I want to be who I'm supposed to be. I want to function as the priest. If I'm serving in the Lord's temple, I want to do it right. And so we kind of get this glimpse of a, of a totally different way that Samuel is living, He's taking his role really seriously. He's honoring God's way of doing it. Um, and then this is also a really cool couple of verses that if you were with us uh, last week, um, we, we see Hannah give away her child to be raised in the church, and God blesses that sacrifice, right? God blesses the fact that she turns her son over to be, to be raised in the temple, to become who he's going to become as a prophet over Israel. I mean, the, literally this book is named after him. 2 Samuel is also named after him. He becomes this massively important figure in the theology uh, of the church and of the body of Christ and of the people of God um, because of her faith. And God blesses her with five kids, right? She's got three more sons and a couple of daughters. And really, we see that God blesses those who are faithful. It's kind of this overarching theme we see in that next section, that section that God blesses those who are faithful. Hannah kept focused on God, even when it was hard. She kept focused um, and he blessed her. Now, let me paraphrase. For the sake of time, let me paraphrase what's about to happen because we're going to shift gears back, right? We're going to just back and forth. And we're going to see these characters uh, flip-flop. So what, what happens in verses 22 through 33 is more sin is revealed about these two sons of Eli, right? I mean, they just are, keep getting in trouble. They, they get busted. Apparently, they are, uh, it's revealed they're sleeping with the women who are standing at the entrances of the tent at the temple, right? And so these are supposed to be these, these women who are kind of greeting, and they're a part of it, and they're actually, as priests, supposed to be holy and set apart and all this stuff. They're actually sleeping with them, and their dad finds out, and Eli's like, what are you doing? And here's the really interesting thing. He rebukes them. He's mad at them. He snaps at them, but there's no real consequences. He doesn't kick them out. He doesn't say, you got to leave the temple. You got to do, like, he, he just sees them. He's frustrated. He's upset. He's angry with them. But then there's really no consequences. And then a messenger of the Lord shows up. And the messenger of the Lord says, hey, the Lord is going to bring about consequences. You know what's going on. You see what's happening. And so this messenger of the Lord comes to Eli, the, the prophet at the time, the father of these two um, clowns and says there's going to be huge consequences for your family. And pick up just in verse 34. Just 34, we'll read just the rest of, of chapter 2. And then we'll, we'll stop before we jump into chapter 3. Verse 34. And this, that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a, a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver, a loaf of bread, and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Here's what we see at the end of chapter 2. God's consequences are serious. Right? I mean, there are some pretty massive, I mean, the whole end from verse 22 all the way through is really this, this, this textbook case study of the consequences of 
that kind of rebellion and that kind of just total disregard for, for God's established way, there's huge consequences for that. Let me jump into chapter three because uh, things are going to change gears and we're going to kind of, the, the scene is going to change and now we're going to see um, how Samuel responds um, when he has the opportunity to kind of cut corners. Verse one of chapter three. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent visions. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down on the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. Verse 6, And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not know, did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And then verse 8, And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and he went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Here's what we have going on, right? Samuel is asleep in the temple, right? And he's, he's sleeping in this area of the temple near the Ark of the Lord, which we'll talk a lot more about next week. It's going to be a, a very important uh, piece uh, in next week. But right now, just for context, just know that it is really uh, not just a symbol, it's a little presence of God. And so he, he gets to sleep near the Lord, right? But he's never heard the Lord speak to him, right? In this Old Testament time, it kind of God had become dormant. They didn't have God's word yet. You know, that kind of, they just had the law, and, and that's what the temple and the prophets were supposed to do on behalf of the Lord, but they're all out of bounds, and the prophets are kind of doing their own thing, and the priests are wild, crazy sons. God speaks to him. He doesn't even recognize God's voice. He thinks it's Eli. He's like, what's up? What's up? No, it's, they realize, and he hears God's voice, and he hears God tell him, what's about to happen. Here's God tell him these are the consequences that are about to happen to Eli and his family. That prophet who took you in, this temple, the, the leader of this whole thing, the prophet over this temple in Shiloh, his sons, there's going to be some bad stuff. So much so that they're, they're gonna, their family line is going to be begging for just a morsel of bread, right? Which is, which is such in contrast to what's happening now. There are these gluttons that just are eating meat and eating the best parts of meat, and they're just stealing whatever they want. And God's saying, there's going to be a day where they're just going to be like, could you give me a crumb? Because my consequences are going to be that severe and that swift, right? God speaks, and Samuel listens. That's what we see in chapter 3. God speaks, and it takes him four tries. And then finally, he's like, oh, 
that's God speaking to me. And look what happens. Samuel lay until morning. So Samuel goes and lays back down after he has this encounter with God. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision of Eli. I don't blame him. That's going to get really awkward. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. I want you to just appreciate how respected God's words are here by Samuel. I mean, that's that's what we see. I mean, God's words are respected. Samuel um, is put in a really awkward place, right? God tells him there's some really bad news. Honestly, if it was me, I'd be like, all right, I'm about to have to go and tell the guy who lets me live in the temple that God is going to wipe him out, wipe his kids out, that he's going to be begging for scraps. This is going to get really weird between us. I mean, it would have been so easy just like the sons do, to just cut corners. Well, I'll tell them part of it, or we'll kind of do some of it. I'm going to leave out some of the really hard stuff, but he doesn't. He says, okay, I'm going to respect, I'm going to fear more God and his words and and have more reverence for that than I am the consequences of what might happen if I just say, this is what's up. And so it's this really, honestly, incredible moment of faith here again of Samuel. And it says then in verse 19, and Samuel grew and the, uh, grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, so the whole geographical region of this country, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So we see here as this chapter ends, we're going to see really Samuel grows in the Lord. And really, he gains all this respect, right? Remember, at the time, there are no kings yet. There's no kings in this entire country. Those don't exist yet in Israel. They don't have a king. Really, what they have is they've got priests, and they have prophets. They're kind of not known by, here's our king. They're known by, here's our God. That's kind of what marks Israel as a unique nation at this time. Hey, our God is Yahweh. It's the one true God. And so now, I mean, Samuel's been elevated. He's been raised. I mean, he's got all this respect throughout the entire nation of, whoa, we got a prophet who actually is doing what he's supposed to do in, and God's blessing, God's presence is returning to our country and to our temple, to our place uh, because of that, right? This section of scripture is really this contrast, right? We see Eli's two sons, right? Complete disrespect for God's ways. It's going to end really poorly for them. We're going to see that coming up real soon. And then Samuel, this complete respect for God's word and his ways and his speaking and things are going to go really well for him and his family and his family line in a lot of ways. So how about for us? Right? I want to I take God's word and I want to transition to, okay, amazing. This is a true story. What does God teach us in his word? What do we see here? What about for us? Here's genuinely my prayer for you guys and my challenge for y'all. Our hope is that from this we see how to lay a foundation of a life that leads to blessing and not destruction. Right, we see that there are these two paths, and so our hope is that we lay a foundation for a life that leads to blessing and not destruction. When I say blessing, I don't, I don't mean a huge house and an amazing job. Maybe those things happen, cool, but when I say blessing, I mean a life near the proximity of God with the favor of God in relationship with the God of the universe, your creator who has designed you to be known and to know him. 
That's what I mean by blessing. To be connected to the God of the universe. To, to have the spirit of God in you producing the fruit of his spirit, which is things like love, and it's things like joy, and it's things like peace being produced from you because you are blessed and close to God rather than destruction, right? So what are the building blocks, right? What are the, what are the essentials for that kind of formation that we see in God's word, right? A life of blessing, right? We, we want these things. We want healthy relationships. We've all seen, we've all seen marriages, that have been so unhealthy and so broken and fallen apart. And we've seen the damage of that. And we say, well, we don't want that, right? How do I have a marriage that's, that's in line with maybe God's way that gets blessed the way I want to? Relationships and marriages are crazy hard. God, I need your help on this. What does that look like? Maybe it wasn't modeled for you in your life, right? What does it look like, God, for, for me to have that, to be close to you? What does it look like for me to serve in a way or work in a way that, that my life is about something bigger than just this thing here, but I get to be a part of something bigger and grander and something, make my life count in a significant and eternal way? What are those steps, right? What are the steps to that? Here's the first one. The first one we see in this passage is to know God's word. Where does Samuel, I mean, where's Samuel hanging out? I mean, he is, by, he is in God's presence. He is there, and what happens? He knows, and he eventually, it takes him four tries, he eventually gets, oh, this is what God's word says. This is who he is. This is how he speaks in the Old Testament. This audible voice of God spoke, right? Eli, those sons, right, they didn't listen to God's word. They would have been told it, but they didn't actually have ears to hear it. They would have been told the right thing. We believe God is still speaking to us. The reason we as a ministry, anytime you walk in here on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night, you're gonna hear us preach God's word, and here's why. Because what I have to offer you, Ben or Nathan or Zach or Francis or whoever else preaches in here, right? What we have to offer you will, will maybe last you maybe through lunch. Right? If it's a really good sermon, maybe through lunch. But it won't last, it won't be eternal, it won't really change anything in your life, right? Maybe you'll remember that story of that pastor guy whose brother shot somebody, right? And that's like kind of what you walk out of here with. This, we believe God's word is the thing that actually produces change. We believe that the spirit of God takes God's word, that he's revealed. This is 66 books written by about 40 authors over 1,400 years that are all telling one story. This is God's word, and it will change your life. And the more you read it and study it and know it, it will change your life. The more you will love it. This is God's revealed word to us. Old Testament, New Testament, all pointing to the same God and the same story of creation and fall and brokenness and redemption of a bunch of broken people and restoration, ultimately, of those people. That's the story of God on every page pointing to our Savior, Old Testament, New Testament. So do you know God's word, right? You want to put building blocks, right, like, like Samuel, to say, okay, how do I live this life? First of it is you got to start with knowing God's word. Man, and so often, 
And I'm a pastor, and I'm guilty. So often, this thing for me can become, I was, I was praying with a brother earlier uh, this week, and I remember just confessing. It felt like this thing had become a prop for me, like leading up to preaching last week. You know, I was studying, I was busy, and I was going and going and going, and I wasn't just sitting and listening to God's word. I was like, okay, man, I gotta get my sermon ready. And it had become almost this prop to me, and I felt this overwhelming conviction. So often, this becomes something that looks cool on our shelf or on our, on our coffee table, or it looks good next to our bed, or maybe it's something that we say, man, this has never been a part of my life, right? Maybe the Bible, it wasn't even a prop in your life. It wasn't even something that was like, you know, you put near your bed, or you read something. Maybe it's something that's like, man, this is not what it was modeled to me, and now you show up to college, and you find yourself in a coffee shop with a guy rambling about this. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence that you're here. I think God wants to speak to you, and you're going to hear great sermons, and great podcasts, and great, you know, whatever conferences, and all those things, but this, God's word, will change your life if you let it. You gotta get in it. You gotta know God's word. I think there's a couple big reasons why so often it just sits and collects dust in our life. I think one, because it's intimidating, right? I mean, it's 66 books, and you're like, what is this one talking about? And Leviticus, you get into the book of Numbers, and you're like, what is going on, right? There's gnarly stuff in here you don't understand. There's stuff that seems outdated. What am I supposed to do with this stuff? It's intimidating, let me encourage you with this. Everything is intimidating, right? When you first start, when you become a parent one day, you will realize, I mean, everything is intimidating. I mean, when my kids, like taking a step was intimidating at some point for my kids. They were scared to take a step. It was an intimidating thing of like, I'm gonna let go of this coffee table and I'm gonna take a step and I've never done that before. Everything is intimidating as you first start stepping into it. And so my encouragement is don't be paralyzed by that. Then continue to take baby steps. And also, man, we're, we would love to walk with you. We believe in this thing. It's changed us. We got family night leaders and mentors and disciplers and staffers and volunteers and even other upperclassmen who, who their lives have been changed by it. So, so reach out. Let us walk with you. Let us help you get to know God through his word that is living and active and speaking to us. Don't be stuck by the fact that it's intimidating. And, and maybe that's not what, what you're stuck on. Maybe you're not stuck on intimidating. Maybe you're stuck on because it just doesn't feel tangible. Right? God's word is great, but it just, for you, you have yet to see what's tangible. There's God's word, or then there's this thing right in front of you that feels so much more real than God's word. And I, I want to encourage you in that, man. Sometimes there are things that you have immediate gratification towards. Right? Um, Anybody who takes care of themselves and exercises and all that kind of stuff understands the idea of immediate gratification or then just doing hard things in a gym to get long-term results. Well, God's word is very similar in how it shapes our hearts, and the results are incredibly tangible. I had a, a, a friend, honestly, he, when he first walked in here, I didn't know him, but about two years ago, he came into this ministry. He was a TCU student. Uh, he didn't believe what we believed. He was like, this is cool, whatever. I'm honestly just showing up because I've been kind of in a low, a low place and a couple friends invited me and he showed up on a Sunday morning and he heard God's word preached and he was like, what the heck? What is this? What are, who are these people? Why are they singing weird songs? Like, what's happening? Like, I don't really believe any of this stuff, but I'm one of, and so he started asking questions. He started grabbing coffee with some guys who, who were living their lives really God's way and in God's word. And he started taking some steps. And he had really good questions too. I mean, sharp guy. The reason he didn't believe were for really good reasons. He was like, but what about this? Nobody's ever, and so we're like, well, let's, let's look at that. That's a great question. Why do we, there, there is really, there should be really good thought behind our belief. 
We don't believe this thing because it makes us feel good, right? If this thing just becomes an emotional crutch, this whole Christian thing, then man, let's get a better hobby. There's much better hobbies if we want to make, make Christianity about an emotional crutch so we feel better or so we see loved ones after we die. This is, this is a part of our design. We believe it. And so he's asking good questions and then he started to get in the word himself. He started to study and he started to ask, he started to read more and started to ask questions. And man, his heart changed. His life changed. His joy changed. His peace changed. It, it, it was so tangible, the effects that it had on him. And he is one of many, many people I am one of those people. When I am near God, when I'm near his word, and when I'm not, there are tangible effects. Second thing, right, on these building blocks, you gotta know, God, know God's word, but also you gotta respect God's way. And I'll be quick on this because I think this is a linchpin between knowing God's word and then respecting it. It's one thing to know and have a lot of head knowledge and say, yep, I learned 1 Samuel, and you could do that. You could stick around this whole semester and be like, yep, I now know the story of 1 Samuel, but if you're not respecting it, well, then that's the sons of Eli. They knew the right thing, but they didn't really care. There was just cheap grace. Ah, God's not that big of a deal. He'll be fine. He's good. He's kind. I'm pretty sure he'll just, he'll just I'm, I'm not as bad as somebody else. And so there wasn't a reverence or a respect for God's way, which then leads to a, a challenge to obey God's leading, right? That, that we are called to know God's word and, and then also respect God's way, that God's word is saying, hey, this is how you should live, and then to actually put it into practice, to obey God's leading. What does it look like if we have one and two? What's it look like if we know God's word and we respect it, but then we don't actually obey it, right? Looks like we're still stuck. Some of you guys, too, some of my, my favorite people, and people who've really walked closely with me and really honestly encouraged me a ton are people who come from maybe a more like orthodox religious background. So maybe some of you guys are Catholic or you grew up Catholic or maybe you are Catholic or more orthodox or Lutheran or something like that where you went to church and you went to mass and it wasn't like a coffee shop. It was like very reverent and the whole, you know, much more orthodox is what they call it, liturgical and you repeated the thing and some stuff was in Latin. One of the things I love about kind of those denominations is they get reverence, right? If you're ever in Catholic mass, there's an element of like, there's a reverence. But one of the things that my buddies who, who are, are there, they struggle with the opposite side, which is then they leave those places and they're like, yep, cool, did it, check the box, and I'm good for the next six days, right? Did that thing, kept God over here, he's going to be there, and what happens then is our faith is fragmented, right? Our, our faith is fragmented. We just got God in this part of our life, and he's not really like, yeah, yeah, no, he, I, I revere him, he's good, and then I go and I just do whatever I want to do. I'm not actually obeying his leading. He's saying, Ben, come and look more like me and live out what I'm calling you to live out, not because I'm some angry God who has these rules, but because I've made a way for you to live that will be more of a blessing. It's how you're designed to function. It's how you're designed to function, and you're not living that way. And I'm like, nope, I'm good. I did my, I did my church thing. I'm good. Check the box. Now I'm going to live how I want to live. And it's fragmented, and God does not design us to be fragmented. He designs and calls us to be whole. He wants all of us. He wants all of us to be whole and to live out the gospel in our life. What happens when we're fragmented is we get anxious, we get exhausted, we get stuck, and then we think, God, we need to fix this, but then we're like, I can't approach God because what I've done, I gotta get myself cleaned up before I can go back and approach God again, and, and it becomes this thing. But the gospel of Jesus Christ allows us to become whole again. 
If you hear anything I have said, I want you to hear this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the reality of God that said, you are too broken to clean yourself up. I am too filthy to make myself whole. I'm too fragmented to be able to make myself whole. But a holy God said, I'm going to send my son, and he's going to hang on a cross 2,000 years ago. He's going to be dead, buried, and then he's going to raise again. And for anyone who wants wholeness instead of a life fragmented and compartmentalized and stuck in sin and turning our wheels and not getting anywhere and the exhaustion that that is of maybe immediate gratification on a Friday night and such emptiness Saturday around 11, right? Anyone who wants that, God says, I will make that available because that's my daughter and that's my son and I love them and I want them and I want them to be whole. And so I'm going to let my perfect son, Jesus, God in flesh, hang on a cross and take all of their brokenness. And now, for those who put their faith in Jesus and say, yes, not just I believe, not just I check that box, not just I'm going to pray a prayer sometime, and now I've got it, right? But no, a surrender to say, that is my hope, God. Not in myself, not in my world. God, take me. I'm yours. Right, the idea of baptism all throughout the New Testament is this idea of people being dunked in water, and it was a symbolism of saying publicly, my life isn't my own. My life is surrendered to the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. And now I live my life in faith in that God. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that's available. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how far you think you've run, this thing that keeps you trapped, listen, this thing that keeps you trapped is that thing that says, you're way too far. Maybe come a few more times, get yourself cleaned up, and then maybe you can take some baby steps. He says, I love you as you are. Come and surrender and walk with me, and you'll walk in perfectly, and you'll fall, and you'll step, and that's the last thing I want to end on is maybe what keeps you Maybe what keeps you in that place of not obeying is you just feel stuck. You want to. You want to. You just feel stuck, and you don't know how to get yourself unstuck. That's what the gospel is. It's what sets us free. And so I get unstuck from my sin by getting in God's word, reminding myself of who I am and whose I am. I'm a son of the king of the universe. And not because I did anything to earn it, but because this gracious God said, Ben, just like he said to my brother, and my brother's trajectory looked really different than mine, and yet God got a hold of my brother, and now my brother is a dad and a husband, and he's one of the examples in my life of what a godly man looks like, and his faith is so rich, the way he leads his family, and the way that he serves in his church, and the way that he loves strangers, full of joy, and how God has taken that thing that we just thought, that's too far. It's a no. Look how powerful I am. Watch me show off. And so we keep our eyes on our Father one step at a time. Let me end with this. I got two boys, and they're sitting up here in the back of the room right now. And, and my two boys, and I want them to obey. Right? I want them to obey me and their mom. But here's a really stark difference. I love my boys, even when they disobey. And I want them to obey and I don't want them to think, oh, well, I have to obey so that I earn God's love, so I earn dad's love, right, my love, right? I want them to obey because they know how much I love them. 
I'm a father. I want to be. I'm an imperfect father, but I want to be a father that is a picture of their heavenly father, your heavenly father, a father who says, come and follow me one baby step at a time. You say, but I don't, and, and he says, look, you're not earning. Your obedience isn't earning you anything of his love. He loves you right now fully. The, the furthest you've gone, he loves that version of you. And then he says, one step at a time, come to me. That's the father we approach. That's the father who stands at the altar, this holy and reverent God that we should have respect for, and says, you are my daughter, you are my son in Christ. If you have surrendered your life to Christ, come to me. And that's how we get unstuck, one step at a time because of the gospel towards that God. If that's something you've never done before, if you've tried church and religion, you've tried cleaning yourself up, you've tried to keep the scales tipped in your favor, okay, I'm gonna try to do more good than bad, None of the Bible points to that. It just points to the Savior of Jesus. That's something you've never done today. Don't leave this room without doing that. Pull us aside. I want, or, or you got questions. Now let us walk with you. And if you've done that, you've got growth and depth and a life of blessing, one step at a time, laying these blocks in the foundation. That's our hope and that's our prayer for you guys. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We need you, Lord. Would you continue to shape us into the kids that you desire us to be, Lord? Thank you for your word. Thank you for the relevance of it. God, we, um, we just ask your Holy Spirit to do what only your Holy Spirit can do, which is show us. Uh, show us how far we've wandered in your kindness. Would you show us? Would you convict us? But not so we get buried in guilt and shame, but God, so that we could see the kindness and the grace that you have for even a bunch of broken people that you still love us, that you still love us, that you're the Father who says that we can come to you. We can approach you with all of our baggage and all of our junk. And so God, would we leave here? Would we leave here with doing business with you, God? Would we leave here changed and transformed and more of you and less of us? And so would we truly come to you and would we lay down our junk at your altar and would you continue this work in us? Would you lay the foundation? God, for those who have questions, for those who feel far off, or for those who just are so close to you, God, each one of us, help us to know what that next step of faith looks like. We love you. We're grateful for how you loved us first. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.